and happy summer to all you royals, rebels, and romantics out there. This summer, we're cruising through history as I share some of the highlights of the talks I gave while cruising through the British Isles. So sit back and enjoy as we go cruising through history. Hello and welcome to more summer cruising through history. So today we're going to talk about Ireland and Scotland, a little bit of France and Burgundy too, and how these international players joined the game in supporting Tudor pretenders who were trying to oust Henry VII from the throne. So last week, we looked at Henry Tudor and his Welsh background and his dragon emblem, and we saw him successfully take the throne and have a son. And we're going to start about at that point today, but see some of the things that go wrong. So if we talk about Bosworth, and I do want to start again at Bosworth, because there are a couple of people at Bosworth who will play a big role later. So of course, there's Henry Tudor and his troops, and there's Richard III, but there are also the two Stanley brothers. So we have Lord Stanley, who is married at this point to Margaret Beaufort the mother of Henry Tudor. She has married a few more times after her husband, Edmund Tudor, died. So we have him and we also have his brother, William Stanley, and both of them have troops who come in and sweep in, sort of William Stanley's troops sweep in at the last minute and really propel Henry Tudor's victory. It's very important at that moment where Henry is most vulnerable that the Stanleys come in. And it's in fact, according to legend, Lord Stanley, who sees that crown on the thorn bush, of course, and picks it up and crowns Henry Tudor as the new King of England right there. And it's, you know, it's a really interesting moment. And it's interesting that the Stanleys have thereby proven themselves to be loyal and beyond loyal, really strong, game-changing supporters for Henry Tudor. Now, remember, he's grown up at a time where a lot of people turned on him, and he's not really willing to trust all that many people. But the Stanleys really seem to have proven themselves to him. And so as he becomes king, he rewards them and gives them, you know, really high positions and and, uh, honors them for their help as he does with his supporters. And so we have Henry Tudor. He's now crowned as Henry VII. He marries Elizabeth of York after he holds a parliament to make sure everyone agrees that she's a legitimate heir. And so he marries her. And then they have this baby. And it's the legend of King Arthur and all of that starting. And so within 22 months of the Battle of Bosworth, we have Henry Tudor having done a whole lot of things right. He gets himself crowned in this elaborate, elegant, magnificent ceremony in Westminster Abbey. He overturns the law that made Richard III the rightful heir to the throne and reestablishes the legitimacy of all the Yorks, including Elizabeth of York. He then marries Elizabeth of York and produces a son and heir, a healthy baby boy, 
born at Winchester, named Arthur and set up to become, you know, the next great King Arthur. And so he has really ticked a lot of boxes if you want to look at the makings of um, a late medieval king. I mean, he's really doing it right. And that's in only 22 months. And so you might think, ah, now is the time for him to just sort of relax because he's made it happen. But no, rebellions begin, significant, serious rebellions begin right at about that 22-month mark before even two years have passed, and they last for years. Henry is continually challenged for his throne, and a couple of these rebellions gain international support and and really represent a significant challenge. And so I want to talk about these two and sort of the roles that they play. So we start with Lambert Simnel and he claimed to be Edward the Earl of Warwick, and that was the son of George the Duke of Clarence. Now, some people, especially people in Ireland, quite frankly, believed instead that he was actually Edward V, that he had escaped from the tower, that he had been in hiding, and that he was emerging now to claim his throne. So the the notion of this, of course, at this time, almost everybody's named Edward. So we have this pretender claiming to be Edward, and it's interpreted a little differently by different people at the time. The official Tudor story is that he was claiming to be the son of George, the Duke of Clarence. And that was an easier story for them to deal with because the actual son of George, the Duke of Clarence, Edward, was in the tower at the time. And Henry VII brought him out of the tower and had him publicly seen and sort of said, okay, see, this pretender isn't this person. Here is Edward, the Earl of Warwick, right here in front of you. But the Irish nobility were supporters primarily of the House of York, not the House of Lancaster. And so they did not support Henry VII. He came as a Lancastrian heir. So they were easy and willing and eager, in fact, it was easy for them to jump on board with this person that we now refer to as Lambert Simnel, who was claiming to be an heir to the throne and a better heir. So let's look back at some of the ways that we get to this point. For one thing, nobody really knows what happened to Edward V. We know there are all kinds of legends and all kinds of theories, and a lot of people feel very strongly about exactly what happened. But the truth is, in the summer of 1483, we know they were both in the tower. They were seen playing in the gardens. And if you've been to London and see the tower, you know it's larger now than it was then, but it's a compound and there are areas where it's outside and you can see within the walls and the boys were seen. And into the fall, we know that according to records, their households were dismissed. The doctor was no longer visiting them in the tower and they were not seen anymore. And these comments were made by ambassadors and they were made pretty regularly. And so something had changed. Either they had gone somewhere else or they'd been taken to another part of the tower, or something else had happened. Now, there are 
there were rumors. There were rumors they had escaped. There were rumors they had been sent by Richard III to live at some of his other properties outside of London, so they would not be a focus point for rebellions. There are, of course, rumors, very significant ones at the time and beyond, that they had been killed. So we don't really know what happened to Edward V, and so his name is evoked by some people. The more common story associated with Lambert Simnel is that he was Edward the Duke of Warwick. Of course, again, everybody's named Edward, so in his claims to be Edward, and he was the son of the Duke of Gloucester, George the Duke of Gloucester. And George had been executed for treason by his brother, Edward IV, possibly um, drowning a bat of Malmsey wine. We don't know. But anyway, he would have been, his son would have been next in line. So after Edward IV's children were all declared illegitimate before Richard III took the throne, no one ever talked about Edward the Duke of Warwick. He would have been next in line, but everybody just passed over him and went right to Richard. And so um, this was someone that Lambert Simnel could have claimed to be, that this person had been passed over. And certainly he was saying that that person had a better claim than Henry Tudor. So now um, Gerald Fitzgerald, the Earl of Kildare, enters the um, enters the narrative. He was a Yorkist supporter, and he had remained in favor a little bit with Henry VII after Henry VII became king, but he had pushed back at a lot of the things that Henry VII had done. And Henry VII wanted Fitzgerald to just keep Ireland under control. He was Lord Deputy under Richard. He was doing a good job. He thought he could just keep Ireland under control. But in fact, it turned out that Henry VII he couldn't even control Kildare himself. And so um, Kildare was going to be a factor in the rebellions against Henry VII, as was John de la Pole, the Earl of Lincoln. Now, John de la Pole was a nephew of Richard III, and some thought that Richard III was set to name the Earl of Lincoln, John de la Pole, as his heir after Richard III's own son died. So Richard had lost his son, and he wanted to name an heir. And before he got that done, Bosworth happened. But some people, a lot of people thought that it was going to be John de la Pole. And so he was a big supporter. John de la Pole was. He'd been a big supporter of Richard III, and he jumped at the chance to rebel against Henry VII. He became a leader of this Yorkist rebellion, and he went to Margaret of York, who has by now become the Duchess of Burgundy by marrying Charles the Bold of Burgundy, and he got her on site. Now, she may have wanted to be on site anyway. She's the sister of Edward IV and Richard III with no great love for Henry Tudor. And so they worked together and raised a large army, and they went to Ireland to combine forces with Gerald Fitzgerald. And so you have a combination of people in an international court on an international stage who are willing to financially and militarily and just overall lend their support to this rebel who is claiming to be the better choice for King of England than Henry the Seventh, And of course, 
being the crowned and anointed king has not saved Richard II from being deposed. It did not save Henry VI from being defeated. It did not save Edward IV, who was also defeated once. Henry VI was defeated again. Richard III was defeated. Henry VII knows that simply being crowned king is not enough. And so you have this whole combination of people. And in 1487, this is just a couple of years after Henry VII has taken the throne, Lambert Simnel was crowned the king in Christ Church Cathedral in Ireland. He's crowned the king of England. And so it was this huge coronation. And after that, an army went to Lancashire and they're trying to install this new king of England who's been crowned in Ireland on the throne. And things come to a head at the Battle of Stoke Field. And that happened the 16th of June in 1487. And so we're still not quite to two years from August 22nd, the Battle of Bosworth. It hasn't even been two years. And Henry is now forced to defend his throne in battle at the Battle of Stoke Field. And he did. The king had a much larger army than the rebel troops, and the rebel troops weren't very well armed, and there were some mercenaries. But that was exactly the position Henry himself had been in less than two years before. And he knew a king and his troops could be defeated. But it turned out that Henry VII and his troops did prevail at the Battle of Stoke Field. John de la Pole was killed. Others were killed. Lambert Simnel was actually captured and not killed. And after the investigation that the government conducted, um, Henry decided that Lambert Simnel was more of a pawn and not really a main actor. And he, in fact, was um, fairly merciful with him. He spared his life and he put him to work in the royal kitchens. And according to some records, Lambert Simnel grew up, he became a falconer, and he lived and served at court into the reign of Henry VIII. So as far as Lambert Simnel himself goes, even though the rebellion in his name did not work, he seemed to do okay. And many people consider that Battle of Stoke Field in June of 1487 the absolute last battle of the Wars of the Roses, that these Yorkist supporters trying to put someone they claimed was a Yorkist on the throne were defeated by Henry VII representing the Lancastrians, and that that was it now. But in fact, it was certainly not it for Henry VII himself, because the next pretender to his throne was in some ways even more dangerous, and that was Perkin Warbeck. So about three years later, around 1490, there were various rebellions staged by Perkin Perkin Warbeck or in his name, and these lasted for seven years. So this was a long-standing repeat, repeat, repeat rebellion, and Perkin Warbeck claimed to be Richard, who was the younger son of Edward IV, who disappeared in the tower. And he claimed to have escaped, been spirited out. And he first sort of came into public making this statement in Ireland. And there he was stoking rumors that he was, in fact, the real King of England. So going back again to what we know of Richard, the Duke of York, the younger of 
um, younger brother of Edward V and the younger son of Edward IV. He'd been born in 1473, and he had joined his brother in the tower in 1483. He was about 10, and maybe he died, and maybe he escaped. Again, because we don't really know, this opens all these possibilities. So the Irish agitators were very happy to support him, but they'd been kind of burned by that previous experience with Lambert Simnel, so they didn't provide enough support to really keep Perkin Warbeck going. So he heads over to France in 1492, where Charles VIII of France is only too happy to welcome and support anyone who will help him poke at the King of England and cause trouble for Henry VII. Because around 1492, Henry VII is beginning these negotiations with Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain to create a union between England and Spain. And this really leaves France out cold. And so France is thinking anything he can do to make Henry VII look bad and less appealing to Spain is all for his good. And so Henry VII realizes what's going on and that Charles VIII is supporting him. And so he responds to this by invading France in 1492. And he takes a huge army. We really don't think very much about this battle very often, but it's actually one of the largest English armies to leave the country and invade another country throughout the 15th century. And it wasn't only because of Charles VIII's support of Lambert Simnel. There were some other causes, but that seemed to be one of the tipping points. And as a result of the invasion and the success um, that the English troops had, Henry was able to strike a deal and gain a treaty with France that included France agreeing to end their support of Warbeck. And so France is sort of taken out of that picture. But Warbeck's not finished because remember Margaret of York, the Duchess of Burgundy, who had been only so only too happy. Well, she's only too happy again to support any claimant to the throne that can thwart Henry Tudor. And she welcomes um, him to her court. And she's very happy to say, okay, we're going to have Perkin Warbeck here and we're going to recognize him. She even writes to Isabella of Castile, someone she knows pretty well, and says, hey, Warbeck is the real deal here. And I'm asking you and Ferdinand to support me and support Warbeck against Henry Tudor, Henry VII. And Ferdinand and Isabella decline. They're actually pretty happy with this potential deal with Henry VII and the Tudors in England. So they turn down Margaret of Burgundy, but she really is doing everything she can. And Warbeck is able to raise an army there in Flanders. And he sets off for England in the summer of 1495. And he lands in Kent and he thinks he's going to have this great chance of defeating England. But in fact, his army is ambushed by the locals. They are really not interested in starting another war for the crown. And and Henry VII is doing okay by their book. So he is vanquished and he gets out of there and he tries Ireland again and that's not working. And so he's going off, Warbeck's going off to find other foreign supporters. So in England, there is that victory for Henry VII that Warbeck is unsuccessful. 
But there's also some stuff going on in England at this time in 1495, 1494, and 95 that is really bad for Henry VII. And it brings us back to the story of William Stanley. He had fought for Henry at Bosworth, and he'd provided troops at that decisive moment. He had been honored by Henry VII, who made him Lord Chamberlain and Chamberlain of the Exchequer. These were really important positions. They were right at the heart of power in the court of Henry VII. But it turns out that William Stanley was supporting Perkin Warbeck. And we're not really clear why. The evidence seems to be fairly circumstantial, but Stanley does confess. Now, he might have been hoping that he, if he confessed and begged for mercy, that the king would be lenient. After all, his brother is married to the king's mother, and he had previously been so important to the king. But Henry VII realizes, or seems to realize, that any sign of weakness on his part in the midst of these rebellions and these battles and this betrayal at the center of his court by a sort of a family member had to be dealt with immediately and fiercely. And in fact, he goes to trial, he is found guilty, and he is beheaded headed in February of 1495. And so this is a really serious challenge inside the court as well as on these international scales. This is a really big challenge to Henry's hold on the throne. And Henry has definitely learned that he can trust almost no one because he had trusted William Stanley and he had betrayed him. And so there are fewer and fewer people as Henry's reign goes on that he can really trust not to betray him. So this was a really hard lesson for him to learn. Now, we're going to shift back to Ireland for a minute and Maurice Fitzgerald He had supported Perkin Warbeck in the Siege of Waterford as that was going on, and the two of them, with foreign mercenaries, had attacked this stronghold in Ireland to gain more support for Warbeck's cause. And the um, attack on Waterford at this time was the first time we see the army using cannons to fire on attacking ships um, in Irish history. So it's kind of a key moment there. Um, It was not successful. Warbeck manages to escape and Fitzgerald actually is forgiven and is sort of allowed back into the Irish nobility. And Warbeck decides, okay, Ireland's not going to work. I'm going to Scotland. So he goes to Scotland. This is during the reign of James IV. And James IV, again, has had a series of battles with England and with the kings of England. And Henry VII's no different. So he's thrilled to welcome Warbeck. And he recognizes that having him there gives him some leverage with the English king. So he arranges a marriage between Warbeck and Lady Catherine Gordon, who is this fine daughter of a Scottish noble. And he gives Warbeck honor and armor and clothing and really sets him up. And he decides in September of 1496 James IV of Scotland decides he will support Warbeck in his attempt to have made England and take the throne. 
So Warbeck is officially recognized and they offer prayers together at Holyrood Abbey. And he is just all in. James IV is all in to get his guy on the English throne. And as they cross the border, Warbeck had really been hoping that the war, the Yorkist supporters in Northern England, like Northumberland, would rise up and support him. He's representing again that Yorkist claim. But it turns out it doesn't quite work out the way they like. And in fact, Henry VII is using treaties again. He's used a trade treaty to sort of neutralize the support of Margaret of York, Margaret of Burgundy. And now he comes up with a treaty with James IV. And it turns out eventually as part of that treaty that Margaret Tudor, the daughter of Henry VII, is in fact going to enter a marriage with James IV. So James IV realizes and then actually negotiating with Henry VII is going to get him more than this ongoing relationship with Warbeck. So he pulls back and stops supporting Warbeck, and Warbeck hasn't succeeded. He goes back to Ireland. That's not working. He comes back to England. Um, hey, the people in Cornwall aren't very happy with Henry VII. So he heads there and he thinks if he lands in Cornwall, he can get people who've been so upset about taxes to help him. And he is declared Richard IV there in Cornwall. But as the royal army approaches, Warbeck realizes he's so outnumbered, there's no chance. And so he panics and he goes to Beaulieu Abbey and takes sanctuary and decides maybe he'll just, you know, hang out, but he realizes he can't stay there forever. So he comes up with a plan that he will surrender and allow himself to be captured, and then he will plead for mercy. And so while he is imprisoned in the tower after his surrender in 1497, this has gone on all this time, um, he confesses and he's kept under guard. He gets out of the tower for a while, but is kept under guard. Then he's returned to the tower and he's kept near the actual Earl of Warwick. Remember the initial pretender claimed to be the Earl of Warwick, but the Earl of Warwick was in the tower? Well, Perkin Warbeck is now with the Earl of Warwick in the tower, and there's an escape attempt in 1499. Now, some historians believe that the two men, Warbeck and Warwick, were set up, that they were helped to, quote, escape. And in any case, the escape was thwarted and both of these young men were executed. So this really paves the way to eliminate these rebels right before Catherine of Aragon is due to arrive. So the timing makes people a little bit suspicious that all of a sudden these two men would try and escape from the Tower of London, but apparently there was some sort of attempted escape, and in any case, they were, they were both executed. Now, this allows Catherine to come to England, and that is sort of the final way that Henry VII succeeds against these rebels, these pretenders to his throne, who have since less than two years into his reign have plagued him and have challenged him. And now here he is, he has Catherine of Aragon, and everything seems to be moving forward. Of course, 
All of this that's been tied up together is shattered by the death of Arthur and um, later. So Arthur dies in 1502. Elizabeth of York dies in 1503. And Henry VII sort of tips into the worst parts of himself. He becomes, becomes more and more paranoid. He does become this money hoarder at this time. He feels like he's lost his true supporters and the people around him. He has trouble trusting people and his illness gets worse and worse. And so eventually he dies in 1509. He has lasted long enough that his son is able to take the throne as Henry VIII, as almost an adult, only a few weeks shy of his 18th birthday, but really is able to take the throne. And I'd like to read for you as we finish up this talk about Henry VII, what Nathan Amin, one of my favorite scholars about Henry Tudor in this period of time says, only one man emerged victorious from these years of strife, the original pretender, Henry VII. Between 1485 and 1499, Henry had invaded England, seized the crown in battle, married the princess, established a thriving dynasty, replenished the treasury, earned continental continental recognition from his peers and the papacy, suppressed these rebellions, and vanquished two serious challenges to his throne. When later describing the character of Henry VII, Polydor Virgil noted how, quote, his spirit was distinguished, wise and prudent, his mind was brave and resolute, and never, even at moments of the greatest danger, did it desert him. And so that's how Nathan Amin, and then he quotes Polydor Virgil, looked at Henry VII, who certainly, by the end of his reign, had completely solved the problem of the Wars of the Roses and established that dynasty that would last beyond him into the next century and for nearly a hundred more years. So thank you for joining me to look at Ireland and Scotland and France and how all of that played in with the two pretenders to the throne of Henry VII. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics as we cruise through history this summer. I so appreciate your listening. Please consider leaving a rating, subscribing, maybe sharing with a friend, and even becoming a patron. I would really appreciate it. And let's keep shaking up history together. Together.